Making Media Tells a Story of Our Media Business Colossus. If you aren't familiar with our platform, make sure to check out joincolossus.com. There you'll find our latest episodes across each of our shows, the transcripts, supporting third-party materials, and even some written content as well. So whether you're an investor or an operator, we're out to create the content that we wish we had when we were in those exact roles. Invest like the best, business breakdowns, Web3 breakdowns, and founders each cover different angles of the ecosystem. And our special series like 50X and Return on India are targeting niche topics. Again, make sure to check out joincolossus.com for more on the platform. Let's do this. Welcome to Making Media. Humans are in an eternal quest for convenience. Save me time, make my life easier. My gosh, that was such a good start to an interview. Welcome back to Making Media. Today, we're sitting down with Brian Morrissey, and this episode gets back to the guts and glory of the media industry. We have some guests from time to time who are tangentially related to media. Not the case here. In 2021, Brian founded The Rebooting. This is a newsletter publication focused on the mechanics of building sustainable media businesses. Can you understand why that speaks our language? And prior to The Rebooting, he spent a decade building Digiday and had a nice stint as editor at Adweek prior to that. For this conversation, we get into Brian's own experience on launching his business, his view that we're in a more with less era in media, and then we rapid fire through some fun topics, lessons from the Barstool Pen breakup, Pat McAfee and ESPN, and ad agencies. Mostly fun topics. Maybe ad agencies doesn't fall into that. We have links to all of Brian's properties in our show notes. We are readers and listeners, so take that as testimonials. And please enjoy this conversation with Brian Morris. All right, Brian, we're excited to uh, chat about a lot of different things media today. I actually wanted to start with a recent thesis that you have, and maybe you can outline what you mean when you're talking about the more with less era in media. Yeah, I mean, first of all, thanks for having me on because I'm not like making this up. I've wanted to talk to you for a while because I'm really into what Colossus is doing. And I think it's part of my overall thesis about where media is going. So we got to like run it back on my podcast. <laughs> um, home, we're always up for it. Yep. But yeah, I mean, I think the more with less era is the background music to all of this, right? And, you know, I'm a runner. And what I've noticed over many years of running is that when the wind is at my back, I just think I'm really strong. And then when I turn to come home, I start complaining and I think about how unfair it is that I've got this 20 mile an hour wind in my face. The wind was at every single business's back during this zero interest rate era. And I think in publishing, because there have been so many structural challenges over, you know, basically since the internet collided with publishing, that in some ways people didn't appreciate just how difficult it will get in a new environment. And I think that when you see like the different forces, first of all, the competition for advertising has never been greater. When you have Instacart as a billion dollar ad business, that's saying something. It's Instacart. You know, for years, publishers complained about the duopoly. Well, guess what? There's no duopoly anymore, but it's an oligarchy. It's about who has the best data and who is able to apply that data the best. I will bet on technology companies nine times out of 10 in that. I just do not believe that publishers are going to be able to compete 
solely on that ground. So that is going to drive just pressure on these business models. And so publishers have to get more efficient and they have to figure out what their model looks like in this era where they need to do more with less. Because what I've seen with publishers over the years is this tendency to chase incremental revenue has led to, frankly, bloated infrastructures because within publishers, you know, the people creating the content are a small part of the amount of people needed. And when we're talking about infrastructure, a lot of times we are talking about people in publishers. And the reality is that a lot of publishers need to get smaller and they need to get leaner. And I personally would rather be smaller at this point than bigger, because I think scale will go from a competitive advantage to more often than not an albatross. Efficiency is a really interesting word around media. And I think you kind of call it the year of efficiency as well with the end of... Well, Mark Zuckerberg called it that. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) I think it's going to be like an era of efficiency. It's going to give way. (laughs) Yeah, Zerp has gone. We've got efficiency isn't in the building. I wonder how compatible efficiency and media is. And I guess this kind of goes into a question about how you measure success in media as well. It's an ongoing question that we ask ourselves and other people. Like, Just riff on those concepts a bit in terms of how you see them all playing together. Yeah, I have all these like contradictory things. On the one hand, like I'm saying that there's going to be this drive to efficiency. But on the other hand, I also like write about how you can optimize yourself to nowhere. And that when you treat publishing like unit economics and you're trying to judge each piece of content, like did it perform, did it not perform, you end up losing sight of creating a defensible brand because media is not just done on spreadsheets. And I know we want everything to like fit on the spreadsheet and it flattens everything. But the reality is if you're just looking and optimizing, you're going to not create a differentiated brand and you will not have pricing advantages in the market that comes with a brand. You're going to be competing on the lowest common denominator and you're going to, more often than not, publishers will lose on that. And so we saw in this scale era how I remember having one of these like social analytics companies coming in and trying to pitch me on their software. And they told me that this will show you what's trending on Facebook. And then you can assign the story and grab some of that traffic. I was like, wow, that's amazing. doesn't really fit with our model because B2B is not just about traffic. I'm like, but doesn't every other publisher have this software? Won't they do the same things? And the answer, of course, is yes. And I think that is what has really hurt publishers and that they don't have unique brands a lot of times because you're just chasing traffic a lot of times and there's no overarching point of view to a lot of publications I feel like these days because they've tried to be all things to all people. And I understand why it's a difficult market. But at the same time, when you think about trying to create a sustainable and equitable, but also resilient media ecosystem, that kind of short-termism is antithetical to that. Have you found any brands that actually balance that particularly well? Because I think we're on an agreement that the scoreboards or scorecards, they misalign incentives. It's like once you start measuring a data point, it ceases to be a valuable data point. And I think that's what you see with a lot of the algorithms. And I think you hit on a great point there just in terms of short-termism. It lacks resiliency because you're chasing something that could be changed by a platform or an algorithm overnight. Have you found any brands that balance that reality against, well, we need to measure something to make sure that we're having success and capturing attention? Does anyone come to mind in that sense? I feel like we're coming out of an era in which the cart went before the horse. 
you need to have a point of view, you need to have a differentiated lens, and you need to have a focus. Like you can't just be covering everything. I knew things were going haywire when Mashable started covering the first Ukraine war uh, in 2014. I'm like, why is Mashable and Refinery29 on the front lines in Donbass? And it doesn't mean you don't look at data and optimize. Of course you do that. But you have to build upon a differentiated point of view and then also narrow your lens basically to have the right aperture. And I think the reason that niche is getting a lot, some people say niche, some people say niche. I don't know. When I say niche in Europe, I get made fun of. So I say niche yeah, and then I sound niche. too fancy here. So I'm just like caught in between. I don't know what to say. But I think why niche gets a lot of focus these days is, first of all, you have a much better chance of building a sustainable media business if you focus on a niche, an affinity area or a business to business area. I mean, business audiences are great to make money from. There's a reason that business class airline seats cost a lot of money because it's generally not the people paying its money. And so they're less price sensitive. And so I think that that's where we'll end up seeing a lot of the action going. And that's why I think that along with this more with less era, the future of media in some ways is quote unquote smaller. How do you think about the reality that most of these media businesses are now competing against everyday businesses that have become media businesses? So whether it's Instacart, as you mentioned, with this large advertising platform, or just the general mantra that every company is a media company, is that a new paradigm where those things need to be taken into consideration beyond what you just mentioned? Is there anything that media companies can do to compete with the reality that Amazon selling a, a load of ads, Instacart is, and that marketplace has gotten much, much more competitive? A lot of media companies have felt like they've been fighting not just with one hand tied behind their back, but both hands. So I guess yeah. you're just kind of left with headbutting blindly. Because a lot of times, like for instance, take what's going on. I think it's fascinating what's going on in the pay TV space right now. And this was a slow motion disaster that's happening. Nobody can say that they're surprised sitting here in 2023 that pay TV has declined so much. But I go back to even 2016, John Skipper was talking to Peter Kafka and he was like, 100 million people still get pay TV, 90 million of them get ESPN. Guess what? That's 40% lower now. And it was very clear and obvious what was happening. But a lot of these traditional and legacy media businesses were so trapped in this misaligned incentives and the innovator's dilemma that they were not able to change their businesses until it's arguably too late. The situation that Disney finds itself in is not surprising. And to me, it came later. I mean, what happened in newspapers was obvious. Like I went to journalism school in like 2000 and they were training us to be a, by the way, I'm never going to journalism school. Anyone listening? <laughs> They were training us to be like basically city newspaper reporters in like the 1960s. We were covering fires and cops and stuff. And it's like, what are you guys doing? Like, and there's always this, I feel like in publishing in general and media overall, there's this clean to the past to some degree that I think has really held back the industry. A lot of times the industry loves to point fingers and they love to blame technology companies for the predicament that they found themselves in. But when you start to unpack it, you can't control the environment, but you can control how you respond to the environment. And too often, media companies haven't responded to changed environments well at all. And a lot of times, that's because internally, there were misaligned incentives. There weren't incentives to change the model. Yeah, incentives tend to come up time and time and time again. Yeah. 
I forget who said it. I don't even know. It's like, show me a bad outcome. I'll show you bad incentives. Yeah, he's Mungo, isn't it? Probably Charlie Munger. Is that yeah, it? Yeah, okay. I think so. Sounds like we can attribute everything to him. It's either him or Einstein. <laughs> that should, yeah. I feel like he's getting a lot more play over the last like several years. It was always Buffett. And then like you heard about him like four or five paces down. But now he's getting... It went from being hipster to like Munger to now it's just the kind of consensus. So we'll start seeing people transition out and go back to Ben Graham and some others pretty soon, I imagine. <laughs> yeah, there are worse people out there as well. I'm curious about, you know, what you said in terms of maybe media companies are just going to be smaller and that's just naturally what they will be. And this might be the exception proving the rule. But like, talk to me about the differences between most media businesses won't be huge versus the ones that have become huge. I'm thinking sort of New York Times as the poster child for a really big media business. Is that just duration? Like you start small, you have, as you said, a different point of view, you build a brand. And if you survive long enough, you might have an opportunity to become big. Or is there something else that happens with the breakout stars? Yeah, I mean, I think it's a power law. The New York Times is the exception. There's not going to be 50 New York Times. The market can't support that. I mean, the New York Times has executed on a model tremendously, and they've done it with so many different advantages. They're in the biggest economy in the world. They're also in by far the biggest news economy in the world. They're in a market where it's a very rich market in which people will pay for subscriptions. Try that model in like the UK, like impossible. You're in a mid-sized market. People there are cheaper. Thank you. They're always talking about the cost of living crisis. You <laughs> can't talk to a Brit without the cost of living crisis coming up. And they're just far less likely to pay for subscriptions. So I think the New York Times is the exception and there always will be exceptions and we'll just have that power law. I mean, you're seeing this in the creator economy, right? There's not much of a middle class in the creator economy. There's like an extremely long tail. We could point to the few like exceptions to the rule, but I feel like power laws exist in all of these markets. And so that's why I'd be more bullish on having a leaner and smaller cost base than having a big one, because that requires you to do all kinds of things to feed that beast. And with the rapid changes going on right now, and particularly with some of the technologies that are coming out and AI, et cetera, you're going to be able to do far more with less. And so it's better to stay as lean as possible. And I look at like new models like POC or Punchbowl, even Semaphore and some others. They're focused on narrow, high value segments, right? And they have kept their models way leaner than the previous generation of publishers. And I think that's really smart. And it's driven by the reality that there's not a lot of appetite to raise 40 million at a $400 million valuation out there. And so people are going to have to be scrappier. And I think that should lead to better products overall, because you have to like kill things that are not working. There's no pivot to video if you don't have the resources to pivot. You've written about sequencing and you've covered this, I think, recently. How much of a lesson do you think that is recently, just in terms of trying to be a jack of all trades versus mastering one specific medium? You know, it might be the audio medium for business and investing concepts like some brands I know, but there's more than one way to peel an orange. But, you know, when you think and step back in terms of if you were starting a media business today, day one, how would you approach it? Yeah, like John Kelly from Puck, I had him on my podcast the other week. And he talked about this concept of owning the waterfront. And it was the idea that you would basically go big 
it's like go big or go home and giant impact and the rest of that. And a lot of this is like, you know, news driven. I think that's really difficult to pull off now. And more brands are going to see that it's just the same as a lot of tech companies develop. Uber didn't start as like a massive global logistics platform. <laughs> like, no, they started by having black cars in San Francisco. And, you know, media is no different. And I think a lot of times when people see some of the newer brands, they see that they're very narrow. That doesn't mean they have to stay there. Again, I don't think that there's a ton of $500 million plus brands to be built, but like you can build a lot, you know, a sizable brand, but you, it's just going to take longer. It's going to be harder. And you're going to have to be narrower in your approach to begin with. Now, the counter to that, and Sean Griffey has done an amazing job at Industry Dive, because I think about Industry Dive, nobody paid attention to Industry Dive. They have like Waste Dive, et cetera. And like, you know, they've focused in on narrow B2B verticals. And some of them are in areas that aren't quote unquote sexy or anything like that. It's not like music. It's more about like, you know, logistics and infrastructure, waste management and stuff. And they built a bigger business than BuzzFeed by far. I think it exited about three BuzzFeeds. And I think that's telling because their approach was, however, it was different. Like, I mean, for me, like I would rather master one particular area and then expand into contiguous areas. Sean has a thing that the problem with that model is you'll never feel like you've perfected the area. And so you won't have the speed to get to the other areas. So they took like an in-between approach, you know, they launched with like four verticals. Obviously there's a lot of different ways to do it, but I think no matter what, you're going to see more people have like a narrower aperture to start. Yeah. I'm a big fan of what Sean's building um, and has built there already. Can you talk about everything that you've already explained to us in the context of what you've done, the rebooting and you were at Digiday and various other media businesses beforehand, and now you're an independent media business. I'd love for you to kind of talk us through the decision to leave and then how you thought about building this business and how it's gone since then. I was at Digiday for about 10 years. I think I joined when there was like four of us. And then when I left, there was about like 75 and you know, grew the business quite a bit. I learned a lot from there. And I was the editor-in-chief and then president. So I looked after a lot more than the editorial. And I was like thinking about like what I was going to do next. I knew I wanted to create something my own. Like I wanted to have autonomy. No matter where you are, like on some sort of like masthead or like executive team page, at the end of the day, if you don't own the business, then you're expendable. At the end of the day, that's why I cannot stand this like, oh, we're a family. I don't know about these people's families, but like... <laughs> My family doesn't regularly excommunicate members, so maybe we should retire that. But I knew I wanted to do something that gave me autonomy, and I saw what was going on with Substack. I saw what was was going on just in the overall creator economy. I don't really love the term, but I saw that there was this like crisis of like trust in institutions across all society, and there was way more trust in individuals and. I thought that that was a really interesting lesson because I did a podcast at Digiday, and I'm sure you guys find this, the kind of connection you have on a podcast, and I think it's because of the human voice, is completely different than a lot of different forms of media. I've written for magazines and newspapers and websites and all this sort of thing. It always reminds me of the blog year in some ways. And you do the same with like newsletters, you know, because newsletters are more personal. They arrive in an inbox and... 
I think the best written newsletters are written in a conversational tone. So I was very interested in trying to build a product, one that like was just mine at the end of the day. I mean, when you're doing stuff, I love working with groups of people and I want to like again, but ultimately, you know, the product is not totally the way you want it to be. And when it's just you, you got no one else to blame, right? <laughs> like it's <laughs> for better or worse, it's your product. So I wanted to do that. I want it to be more personal. I always felt like I was writing kind of in a different way. And I think part of that is the profession of journalism. Like you're almost like cosplaying. That's why you read these strange things in, I would always say this to reporters because you use these like cliches and conventions. And to be sure, I'm like, would you ever say this? Like ever? (laughs) (laughs) So why are you writing this? But we all do it to some degree. So I just thought that there was a a way to create a new type of brand that obviously, as I said, kept the costs low. The costs are pretty much de minimis outside of um, a couple of people I have helping me on the sales infrastructure side. And to be able to build a brand that was more personal and develop those kind of connections with people that are, I think, going to be more valuable and durable than the kind of like flyby like connections people have to pretty bland and cookie cutter institutional brands. How much of that thesis that you had when you left to launch it is still intact in terms of... It's in tatters. It's intact. (laughs) (laughs) No, I mean, look, I don't know how you guys feel, but like everything is in retrospect. It's like, well, this is what I plan to do. And at best, it's like based on a true story movie. Everything is always messier. I left a jet at a one-year non-compete so I had the best job in capitalism without capital, which is I was getting paid not to, <laughs> to work. Yes. Yeah. Amen. And I was Teach living <laughs> across the street from the beach in Miami. So like first year, I can't say I was in like the highest year because I couldn't sell anything or anything. But the way I looked at it was beyond the opportunity to go to the pool a little bit was that I could use that year to figure out the product. And it was a tremendous, you're always looking for leverage when you're starting something. And I looked at my leverage and I was like, okay, well, here are my points of leverage. One. I can make the product. I can. I don't need to hire someone to make the product. If I was some operations guy or hustler or whatever, or from sales, I'd need to hire someone to make the product. I didn't have to do that. Number two, like with the Substack and different tools, basically take away all the costs of creation. Number three, distribution. I had built-in distribution from just staying in the same industry for you know a long period of time. That helped quite a bit. I think a lot of times people are like, well, that's an unfair advantage. It's like unfair, that's earned. Like, I don't know, put in 20 years of work, then you can have it too. Show up every day. So I looked at those advantages and I thought, well, this is like a good opportunity for me to be able to, and then I would have a year in which I would be able to not really worry about revenue. So it just gave me like an opportunity to figure out the product you're just trying to extend your runway at the end of the day. And I think a lot of times people just run out of gas because it always takes longer than people think. People love those like overnight success stories and I like them too, but they also make me feel inadequate. And so I'm just going to assume that those are the exceptions to the norm and not like lose sleep over it. Survivorship bias. Yeah. 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 Certainly how we feel over here. Things feel a lot messier than people tell me they look from the outside, which I guess is a good thing. I grew up like working in kitchens and like, you know, no matter what the restaurant 
I don't care how fancy it is and like it all is like so, so well run. So it's a mess back in the kitchen, man. Because <laughs> we would write these like inside the turmoil at X company stories. And I'd be editing them and I'd be like, okay, it's like we talked to 37 former employees. And I was like, oh, this is going to be bad. It's going to be some bad stuff coming after that. And I read it and someone's like, this is interesting. This is good. Oh, this is delicious. But I was like, man, what if the story was written about this place? <laughs> I was like, I could only imagine. I was like, I could tell them who to talk to. <laughs> and you could make a really, really freaking bad story. <laughs> Just go on LinkedIn, find all the ex-employees, you know? I mean, it's just like regurgitate a lot of the Glassdoor stuff. And... Scroll down in Glassdoor. Yeah, I got called supercilious on Glassdoor once. I was like, I know who used that word. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> this could be a new media business that we're creating here. Don't do that to the editor because he's going to yeah. know. <laughs> <laughs> when you were thinking about turning the revenue machine of the rebooting on, I love that. Just turn it on. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The spigot. Like, you know, everything's messy, but the, the money will flow in um, just however you choose it to come. That was another advantage I realized I had because I left and I went to Mexico City. It was like October 2020. And so I guess it was the height of COVID. It's about the height of COVID. But I went to Mexico City. And of course, I got COVID. So it serves me right. And I got a call from someone I know who was like, yeah, like, I saw you, like, congrats. I was like, oh, I want to, I'm like, congrats, I just left a job. What is that? <laughs> That's not much of an achievement. And he was like, yeah, I want to talk about sponsoring. I was like, really? And it hit me that, like, I'd never sold an ad in my life before. But it hit me that, like, you know, over almost 10 years at Digiday, I went to every single event. I knew a lot of the clients, even though I hadn't sold them. And... I stood on those stages like nonstop because we did so many events. And again, unfair advantage that I could sell ads with a few thousand like subscribers. But is it unfair? I don't know. Like I didn't really like flying for two days to some random place and then getting in at 11 o'clock at night, making sure to be the first person in the office and stuff like that. But like it turned out that there was a lot of advantages to that. And so I just looked at it as... A lot of people were doing subscriptions. I was like, well, I have an advantage here in that I think I can sell. And this will give me a chance to figure out the product, first of all. And then my theory was, I don't know if it's right or not, I would be able to grow faster by not having stuff behind a paywall. I saw a lot of the publications that are in my space, they were leaning pretty heavily on paywalling what to me was a lot of times pretty mediocre. I can't believe you put a paywall around like some like executive move from this job to the next job. That's some pretty insider info, commoditized stuff. So I just thought I could sell. And so, you know, I've been able to sell a lot of programs and learned a lot. My sort of like late career evolution as like a salesperson. Has that continued into this year? And I will be confessions of a salesman where I came into this role and thought I was bad at sales. And then I started to do some of the selling. And I thought, you know what? I was wrong. I was never bad at sales. I just didn't have something I believed in. And then this year, it's been okay. Maybe a little comeback down to reality. Oh, uh, yeah. How has that gone for you just in terms of things were a little bit easier? I know. This is the worst. I was like, I took the year in which I didn't have to work. I didn't like time it right because I thought, oh, COVID. This is the year just to not have to worry about revenue because there's going to be no money. I didn't really add up all that stimulus stuff and whatnot. So 
No, but I remember getting like DMs from people like, hey, can you do it? And I'm like, mm, okay. Yeah, no, sales gets hard. Like that's what I see sometimes people say, well, you just need to post a link to your sales kit and your emails. I'm like, well, that'll get you a little bit of the way there. But the reality is like, you got to be out there competing. It's a competitive sport. It reminds me a lot of reporting. I would have like reporters who would submit stories and there would be like one source or two sources. And I'd be like, you didn't get, well, I dropped a line. I dropped them a line. I was like, oh, really? Because like, <laughs> I have another story here and I heard this person on the phone all day and like, it's in depth and there's like seven sources in it. And ultimately what you put in is what you get out. I think that's the challenge of a lot of these models is you have to be able to cover a lot of ground. And when I was talking about sequencing, you have to do sequencing internally, right? So anything, if you're mm. going to build like a solo or micro media business, what I would suggest is list out all the things you want to do and then eliminate 80% of them. And that's why I have stayed on Substack. I just don't want to even think about like the product stuff. It's not that I can. I've built websites and all that before. I just like, to me, I remember seeing something like Austin Reef at Morning Bruce said like early on, they just thought about like, right, grow, sell, right, grow, sell. And, you know, everyone's things are going to be different, but you have to sequence and you have to like figure out what's the most important thing. And spending all the time to have like a fancy website and branding, like, I just don't think that that is necessary anymore. Maybe it'll help with like optics or something like that, but particularly if you already have sort of credibility in the market, it just doesn't seem smart to waste a lot of time with that. My two o'clock, got to cancel right now after that uh, answer. I've seen you write that the, the only moat in this really is just hard work. And you listed in the article how hard it is. And I, I'd like to confirm that running a media business is difficult. And growth is hard to come by and slow, as you talked about. Is that truly the only moat you think is just persevering through the pain? I mean, I think for most businesses, because like you said, competition is coming from every single direction. And you can try to protect yourself by where you choose to operate, right? Like if you're operating in a general news category, I mean, good luck. I mean, it's a, it's very worthy. And I hope that your goals are beyond like making money because like your chances are like not great. I gotta be honest with you, but you can choose categories that are more protected than others. It's like, I guess it's like, climate change like everyone's at risk right but if you're gonna live like in malibu like on a cliff you're more at risk if you choose like a more protected category you have some mode like for instance if you look at i think washington dc media is like very indicative of where things are going because i always thought of washington and the media scene as a backwater i mean i lived there in the late 90s and it was like the hill and roll call and like these just like afterthoughts, some like national journal and some high price stuff. Then you have like Politico came on the scene and then Politico gave way to Axios and then Punchbowl. And you have these publications and Semaphore, I would put in there too, that are going after a protected ad category. And the ad category are these like regulate us, but in a way that benefits us and keeps out the competition, not in a way that actually hurts our business kind of ads. Those ads are not ads in which you're competing with Amazon and Google and Facebook. In fact, they're your biggest customers. That's a great category to be in. Similarly, Jay Penske has like almost monopolized the four-year consideration ads. And those are the ads like for the, you know, awards shows that Hollywood throws money at. 
for a while, I think the most expensive like billboard in the United States was like on Sunset Boulevard because it had no economic purpose. It was just the stars had to see like the billboard for their movie to keep them happy. Like you want to find that kind of category. But the other thing I think that if it is a moat in some ways is that personal connection. And that's why I think that either media companies built around individuals or individual-led media companies, that is something of a moat. You can't commoditize a unique point of view on the world. I think personality will only get you so far. It's like a side dish, not an entree. But I don't think you can commoditize that. And I just think that's pretty typical to how you build a brand. But I feel like when it's tied to an individual, it's going to be a lot stronger. First of all, it's going to be more consistent. And then secondly, I think that that human connection gives you something of a premium in the marketplace. That makes sense. It does raise an interesting question for me, though, in terms of if you're looking to start a media business or if someone came to you, would you advise them to think about the market first or actually like their viewpoint and what they're passionate about, given that it's not going to be a quick growth story? I think the latter. I don't believe in the pattern matching stuff. Like I see too much of it out there. Again, I think it's just typical of human nature and also just the desire for shortcuts, the Uber 4X. That's obviously very common in technology and in media, it's not that different. You know, I think there's so many, the morning brew of X and stuff. And a lot of this is trying to work backwards from the result and it's looking at the market and then working your way backwards. Now, again, there's a lot of different ways and it all depends on execution. So like basically industry dive was done that way. You know, they had a formula in which they evaluated markets and then they had a playbook that they ran for those markets. So you can execute all sorts of models. But for me, like to have like a better chance of success, it should be an area in which you have expertise or, you know, a deep, deep affinity for. First of all, it short circuits a lot of the inevitable stumbling around in the dark to try to figure out how things work in a market if you already are well-versed in it. It gives you a connection to your audience and that you get them, right? Like it's not you're some like outsider. And you see this with a lot of the critiques from the tech industry about quote unquote the media in that they feel like there's this adversarial approach. Doesn't mean you can't like hold people accountable or something like this, but to like have that almost like empathy in some ways really helps, I feel like. And I think that's why one of the growing areas of media, you know, is practitioner media. It's hard to pull off, but if you have someone who has deep expertise in an area and has the media chops, now that end part is like difficult because media is actually harder to do than a lot of people think. And you can do it consistently. And that's really valuable. For someone like us, where this past year has been the first year we've actually spent more time understanding the media industry itself. We've mostly been okay, we were practitioners in this investment world, we're going to run our podcast and really focus on the business and investing world. And as we've learned more about the media industry, I will say it's not all rosy and bright. And you talk to a lot of people and it's like the uh, scene from Happy Gilmore where you know he shows up at the nursing home and there's people jumping on his car to get them out of there. And I wonder, where is the time best spent for people in our shoes? Is it trying to identify and ingrain ourselves more in the media industry? Or is it just to kind of go back to the practitioner style, hold on to that previous network and do the thing without thinking too much about the industry dynamics? I mean, every company is a media company, so it doesn't matter how we identify, right? Yeah, but I, I always think like 
you got to figure out where your leverage is, right? And there is a lot of leverage, I feel like, of not being steeped in the ways things were done. Because no matter what, even if you think you're not just following what others have done, if you have like a deep experience with that and like those are the people you've been talking to for so many years, you see this in lots of different industries where people who take a fresh look at a space and be like, well, why? Why do we have to do that? I don't understand. No, that's how it's done. It's like, but why? I think that there's a lot of advantages to that. I mean, obviously media, it's an execution business, I think, in many ways. This idea that you're going to come up with some like never before concept, it's like, no, most things I feel like have been tried or something like this. It really comes down to execution. That's why like when I say about, well, I would start in a niche and then I think about like industry dive, they just executed really well. And to me, media is mostly about execution. When you look at someone like Pat McAfee, I actually think it's a really interesting deal where he went the independent route, had this massive audience, and you have someone like ESPN where whether it's to hedge the future or to just make sure that they lean into what is inevitably happening with streaming, they come to a major agreement with him. What's the potential for a massive consolidation where you do see legacy media consolidating large audience that are more or less independent creators or independent focused media brands? That's a great point because I think the future, you want to be Pat McAfee, you don't want to be Stephen A. I don't mean that because like, I was at like an event here and Stephen A was talking. He's like bombastic on TV and stuff. And he's like, he's actually pretty thoughtful. Like when he's not like doing his like Stephen A routine. Yeah, he talked about like being at risk and having to know like where your like value truly is and how he sort of overrated his value and stuff. I think the way you get out of being thrown overboard when you're inconvenient is when you're doing a deal as a company with another company. Like Pat McAfee is not quote unquote, just talent, because talent is not enough anymore. There's always going to be someone, again, to be the middle-aged guy, younger and cheaper than you out there. And none of us are as indispensable as we think. What Pat McAfee was bringing was he was bringing a media company. This is a deal to me between like media entities and that, those are different deals. And I think we'll see more of that because the leverage shifts a little bit. It becomes a little bit more equal. I understand like the role unions have played, and I think that they can do a lot of good with just setting floors and basics and stuff. They're not the answer to like solving for a lot of the inequality, frankly, that exists within these companies. To me, the only way I could see it is by opting out and like having autonomy. You want to do like a deal with a company, not like get hired. And I think we're going to see that because this is part of the rebundling. I see a lot of media companies. I'm actually doing a podcast right after this uh, with Jason Wagenheim, who's the CRO at Bustle Digital Group. And Bustle's like fascinating in that like they're a lot of times working directly now with like influencers because like the influencers, they don't have the brand relationships that a company like Bustle has and the long experience and the infrastructure to be able to deliver on the art Basel installations and stuff like this. And so I think we're going to see more of this rebundling, but everyone's going to maintain a lot more autonomy. I think that to me is, and maybe this is me personally speaking to it, that is what is so valuable. 
Whereas we're already seeing with the nature of work changing that this all or nothing, you're either a full-time employee or a quote unquote freelancer or something. I think that is going to get a lot messier. I call it like there's going to be a lot of like LLC on LLC action. I think that's a great point and something that we talk about a lot behind the scenes and just in those conversations, which aren't always as exciting to have on a podcast, but it aligns incentives. We can talk about LLCs. Yeah. Yeah. Structuring of these things and creating the proper incentives on both sides. When you mentioned Pat McAfee is a, a media company, not just talent. I mean, is it the full production studio that he brings and the talent around him and the ad deals that he's done? Is there more to it than that that makes him more entity than just talent? He has like a built-in audience. I mean, I guess you could say, I mean, it's talent too. But okay, like, yeah. if someone is just like, well, I'm very popular. You know, it's like, okay, I've got a high Q score or whatever. Okay, that's great and stuff. We'll put you up against other people. And then you get fed into like, you know, an algorithm or a spreadsheet or something. But like, he's bringing to the table a lot more than that. A lot of times with talent, I think what Stephen A. Smith was saying, like, are the people on ESPN, are they Stephen A. Smith viewers or are they ESPN viewers? And the fact is, the answer is somewhere in between or whatever. But you don't know. And in that, the leverage shifts to the company. That's why Stephen A. Smith is an employee. I don't know, you know, he's got a great deal. I'm not crying for Stephen A., but like that's where the leverage shifts to the company. Whereas if you're talking about Pat McAfee, he's like, oh, what are you talking about? Like, I know these people are Pat McAfee fans. I know I can like monetize them too. This isn't theoretical. This is real. And so I think the leverage just kind of shifts. I mean, anyone who's been involved in any kind of these deals or M&A deals like knows like you know, a lot of it is they have like a reality of what they think like you could bring to their company, right? And they have a spreadsheet, but they're not going to show you that spreadsheet. And they're going to like use some other sort of spreadsheet that shows you're like less valuable than they know you're valuable. You're giving me PTSD. <laughs> <laughs> Speaking of another deal that happened or didn't happen recently, broke up. It's the Barstool Pen breakup. I would love to hear what you think the right lessons to take from that are as it relates to kind of media business models. It definitely proves that there's no silver bullet to like the media business. Because like, you know, sports gambling came about in the US at a very fortuitous time for a Barstool and for other sports media sites. Because, you know, sports media is never on the internet is never monetized as well as other categories. You look at the exits in there and like the Bleacher and they're pretty good. And Bleacher was op has been operated really well by Turner. But sports gambling just changed the trajectory of that industry. And I think the difficult part of the deal, because everyone is doing a lot of high-fiving for, you know, Dave Portnoy, oh, he pulled it off again and stuff like this. When you look underneath it, it might also like point to something inconvenient, which is that maybe this stuff doesn't convert as well as everyone thought, because this deal didn't work for Penn. And I think it's easy to pin it solely on all of the gambling licenses and stuff. And that is part of it. The kind of content that Barstool creates, which is unbelievably effective at driving deep engagement. I mean, Digiday, when we would write about like, Barstool, just the business story. Not only would the traffic like be like five x higher, but like the time on page was insane. I used to joke with Erica, the CEO. There it was because people were sounding out the words. <laughs> I don't know if she found it funny. 
like seriously, like the attachment that they have, it's beyond an audience. It truly is a community. But if they can't get that to convert, because media has always been a good business as a front business. It's not a great business on its own. Typically, you have a lot of non-media companies owning media assets. That's why good luck if you're ESPN and you're dependent on sports rights and you're going up against like Amazon and these people have totally different economics. They have totally different business models. It's a tough one. But I think the biggest problem is if this content and commerce stuff doesn't work, man, that's tough because that has been one of the few real growth areas because display ads and the ad market is so cutthroat. Yeah, it's going to still exist and you can make a nice amount of money off of advertising. And particularly if you're in a protected area, like the four-year consideration ads or like those Washington DC ads or B2B ads, that's great. But like general advertising is difficult to support like an ambitious media company. And I think we're seeing that with Barstool. You know, they just cut 25% of employees. When you're trying to like operate this business as a business, as opposed to being a trust fund kid, it's different. It's more with less. And that 25% cut, I think he said outright, it's more or less just trying to run the business as break even. Like that's his goal. So it's not even with these aspirations, which is particularly interesting. Yeah. So, I mean, I think a lot of times people look at these deals like that and are like, okay, well, this is like what the market is. It's like, no, you know, people make these deals based on all different things and there's different sets of assumptions and it clearly didn't pan out. And that's going to affect like how people look at this market, I think. Closing question, and it's a big one that you could probably talk for an hour for, so you might not be able to cover a bunch of it here, but... Jason's going to have to wait for the podcast. Well, he plays into this. (laughs) It's on the topic of ad agencies, and it is by far the most peculiar thing that I've dealt with. My wife works in advertising sales, and I always couldn't believe the stories that she had about dynamics, payment terms, lack thereof, all of this stuff. And it just seems completely broken. And maybe that's why it works. Maybe they hoard that cash and they just find a way... But it feels to me like there's an opportunity to disrupt that market. And there's a lot of new people in the media space that would be beneficiaries and brands as well. Is that anything that you think could happen in the future? I've covered ad agencies probably. I think I started sometime in the early 2000s or something. And I remember the first time I came in contact with how like the ad agency, you know, just trying to understand the holding companies and all the different like sub brand. And like, I was like, how did this come to be? And like, if you were to start over, it wouldn't, there's no way you would do this. And then I found out how deals were actually made. And then about the summer houses and stuff like this. And I was like, Oh my God. I'm like, no wonder the CFO doesn't take this stuff seriously. I wouldn't either. And at the same time, they persist. Rashad Tabakawala is a longtime advertising agency executive. Once I think he was the one who told me that advertising agencies are like cockroaches. They always are survivors. And they are because there's no great alternative to it. When programmatic came, there was a lot of people who thought that that would eliminate the need for ad buyers and ad sellers, and it would be a perfect market and the efficient frontier and all this stuff. I just got a ad sales compensation survey. You know, it's like over 300K and media. This is a business that's uh, struggling. And to get someone to sell ads is going to cost you over $300,000. So I think that tells you a little bit about how these marketplaces inevitably are still more people-driven than anything. Programmatic has 
not eliminated the need for ad buyers or ad sellers. Their roles have changed somewhat. I don't think AI will do that either. Ultimately, it's already been shifting less of a transactional nature and more of a figuring out how to build big programs across a bunch of different areas. And I think that's going to be more the norm, like solutions-based selling and buying. But yeah, it'll still be a dysfunctional uh, (laughs) world. I think that's a fairly benign prediction. Yeah. Feature, not a bug when it comes to those businesses. So in some ways, I admire it. Not when I'm dealing directly with them, but from the 10,000 foot view. I don't have like a lot of agency. It depends on the area. Like my area, I deal directly with clients. Yeah, it's generally their marketing departments. They don't have agencies. I haven't gotten to that level yet. So 95% of our revenue is not tied to agencies. 5% that is, and they make up 95% of the time. Yeah, but they can move a lot of money. That's the thing. It's a pain in the ass, but like they can move a ton of money. Exactly. It's that carrot. (laughs) It's funny because Jason in this thing, one of the topics he wants to talk about is like the messed up RFP process. I'm like, oh my God, I think I've had this conversation like for 15 years. We got a back-to-back pairing here. As people rip off this, we'll get it into the playlist where they could just filter right into that. Um, Thank you very much for your time today. It's been a pleasure. Awesome. This is great. Really appreciate it, guys. Yeah, we love reading your writing. We love listening to you on both of your podcasts. Uh, It's good, entertaining style uh, coverage of the space, which is is always helpful. I love to hear that. All right, Dom, my main takeaway from that recording is that we need to put Barstool in the title. That's number one. I think that's definitely right. Although our clickbaity headlines haven't gone that well for us so far. Maybe this could change everything. And the evidence seems to suggest it will. Yeah, that was uh, probably the instance where I was laughing the hardest and had to gather myself from a comment made. So Brian wins a prize for that. So congratulations to him. Rare that you get me laughing and not able to contain myself. I wish you know when you're with someone and they've gotten a joke and they find it really, really funny. And you're like, I'm not quite sure I got the same angle of the joke there. I really want what that person's got. I was looking at you really like enjoying yourself. I was like, you know, I enjoyed the joke, but I don't think I quite got it. My interpretation was that it was a little bit of a sub-messaging about the audience, which I just found humorous in some ways, but I will leave it at that. I need you to flesh out the end of that. You know, you guys were talking around a few interesting stories in terms of the ad middlemen in our ecosystem. Have you got any that you can share with me and our fellow listeners? Well, I think I've told this story before, but I had a fairly large agency with a sizable check for us. It was well into the six figures that we were owed. And this was six months after a campaign had run. And we do not typically do this. We typically try to owe whoever our partner is the work rather than having them owe us money. And in this particular instance, the agency came in at the very last minute after we had already agreed to terms with the brand. So while I was going on trying to collect, I had been bounced from one person to the next. You know, And it's like, oh, well, so-and-so will help you out and -and so-and-so will help you out. And I got in touch with this certain person where I don't think she even existed. Like, I think this was a made up person with a fake email address because in the actual signature line, it was just all default entrances. And I tried, you know, whether there was like a Facebook, a LinkedIn, anything, no trace of this person's name anywhere out there because I would pick up the phone and just try to make a phone call. 
And it was a really, really tough predicament. And everyone was like, well, just go back to the brand. The brand obviously paid the agency. Well, the brand had fired this agency at this point. So they had paid the agency, but they had fired them. And it's a little bit awkward when you're like, hey, brands, we did all this for you way back when, but can you get involved here in terms of the payments? But needless to say, that did get solved. But I really just kind of collapsed and thought to myself, am I being just like hoaxed here with a fake person that I'm arguing with? And it would always be the same. We really apologize for the delay. We're working this through the system, yada, yada, yada. But yeah, those are the heroic things that I enjoy dealing with. It's amazing what people will do to you, especially when they're holding your money hostage. What was the catalyst that got you through that particular impasse? The brand eventually did get involved. Okay. Yeah, pushed on them. Threatened some heavies, some colossus heavies about to show up at your doorstep. I used some terms that I don't usually use in email, <laughs> which usually I can only hope get triggered, you know, in some type of compliance department or something. That used to happen to us at Goldman, which is like if somebody replied to one of our emails with certain bad words like fraud or negligence or illegal, somebody else was going to be reading the email. So you got to use those tactics when it comes time. But fortunately, I haven't had to do it that often. So I'll be thankful for that. Love it. I'm glad I don't exist in that side of this business. I'll be honest. Well, it's one of those funny things where everyone complains about the whole process and all this stuff. But in reality, they are clipping the margin of acting as the middleman. And then they are protecting the cash flow in terms of how they deal with working capital, getting paid and then really being slow to make their payments. And there's not much you can do about it. So in terms of like who you can thank for that, I guess like investors, shareholders, capital markets, it is what it is. Cockroaches will persist, as we were told. A great line. Yeah. A great line. Yeah. <laughs> yes. We don't deal with too many, so we don't have to worry about how we speak. And even when you talk to the agencies, they know kind of the reality of the situation. So that is what that is. That's absolutely right. Yeah. I mean, other than the fact that Brian called my fellow countrymen poor, I enjoyed that. He said you're price sensitive. You extrapolated that into whatever <laughs> you wanted to mean. I think he called us cheap, which in this year of efficiency, maybe I should take that as a compliment. We're not willing to pay for anything. You can take that <laughs> however you like. I thought there were some particularly interesting insights. Certain things, like symbolic things, the one that I appreciated the most, Mashable and Refinery29 covering the first Ukraine war. Those are the signals that I agree. You can just sometimes see out there where you say to yourself, this doesn't make a ton of sense in terms of like losing your identity. And you have to wonder, like you can get away with some of those missteps every once in a while. And I think it makes sense to balance experimenting and just kind of sticking in your lane. But then you have these perfect examples of things like that, where I think they're just great examples of media companies or just companies in general just losing their way. Yeah. And honestly, I found the whole conversation quite comforting. It was reassuring to me that you know someone who's been in this industry for a long time, held some very senior positions in big media organizations, was saying things that I could resonate with, which made me feel just a whole lot more comfortable with you know what's going on at Colossus and how we think about our strategy and growing, etc. There just aren't any shortcuts in this business. And no real businesses are there many shortcuts. But in this one particular, it's just kind of time and putting out quality stuff and hoping that you pick up followers along the way. It actually ties nicely with some of the follow-up conversation from Patrick's Invest Like the Best with Will England, where he was talking about the multi-manager model, the pod shop model, and how it's taken over active investing. And I think a lot of the follow-on conversation was, you know, the worst place to be is this huge, scaled, active investor where you have a ton of different PMs and they're each with their own 
analyst teams, yada, yada, yada. It's best to either be in that pod shop or like kind of very small subscale where you're managing yeah less amounts of money. And it's this whole idea of like scale can just become an albatross where you have way too much infrastructure and not enough to support it. And I think it just ties back into the whole concept of efficiency is like maybe that will just get back and back into the DNA. I am not fully bought in just because you see these jumps in the market. And I think everybody wants a reason to believe that the previous zero interest rate environment is the environment that's more of the reality or the normal run rate. But yeah, it certainly made me think. That's for sure. It's funny, and this is going to be a very stupid thing to say, but it's funny having been like in an investing seat for a lot of the zero interest rate world. And you know, you're thinking about it from an investment finance perspective, seeing like how much it affects the whole economy. I know like Buffett and other people say, you know, interest rates are kind of the be all and end all. And they have certainly been for the last 15 or so years. But then it's like, you know, even in media, everyone's talking about the impact and obviously it all flows from capital markets. So it does make a ton of sense. But it's just funny seeing the impacts downstream that loose money can have at the top of the funnel. Yeah. And it didn't until it did, because you had this from 2010 to 2018, 19. And then you started to hear about it more and more and more. And then 2020, obviously, the lid blows off. Things get really crazy. But I appreciated that. I think there's this interesting rebundling theme, which he was tapping into at the end there. And I enjoyed that last part of the conversation where you have the practitioners, which I think we love practitioners coming into this environment, sharing unique thoughts, not coming with that same type of pedigree, which I ultimately think it's best to match. You know, you take somebody with ESPN background and upbringing and match them with a practitioner, and you can get some really, really interesting dialogue, conversation and style. But I think that's something that you probably see consolidation, in my experience, tends to take a few years longer than you ever expected to take. So you're like, oh, that'll happen over the next 12 to 24 months. And it's more like over the next three to five years. But I think the McAfee deal and things like that will be more and more common in the future. I mean, the whole conversation felt kind of cyclical, like most things in life. You know, him talking about just having more smaller niche media businesses. It's just like the timeline of if you're going to grow a media business, you have to be really focused on your audience because they need to know what you stand for to be able to generate any audience to begin with anyway. And then obviously, like the more success you have, the more you have license to kind of broaden out. And or if the reality is, as he said, you just end up with a bunch of very successful, small-ish media businesses, then you have to expect at some point someone's going to come along with a lot of money. And you know you kind of see it with Amazon, etc. at the moment and be like, oh, we could just pick off 10 of these. And they also have a different vertical that we can like do whatever with, probably sell ads through. You've now generated another big media business of these bunch of small ones in terms of kind of the rebundling, unbundling stuff. The whole world is cyclical. I'm definitely the guy with the hammer that just hits everything with that. But that's how I see the world. I think it's completely fair. It moves back in both directions. And it's just about understanding which wave it's going in. Because even if you move in that direction, capital that can come in. And I think his approach to sales, which we ended up talking a little bit more after we hit stop on the record, which is a shame for most of the audience, but it'll just mean we'll have to do it again. But he's thoughtful about where there is demand in terms of monetizing what he's doing. And I think that's smart. You do have to understand, you can't just ignore just for the sake of being prideful and being stubborn. Yes, that will build resiliency, but you can also lose out on opportunities. So it's finding that middle ground, which I think he's doing quite well. I had two takeaways from that. One, from what he said during the conversation, we need to be sending you to conferences all over the world because clearly that's where you forge connections that lead to ad sales. And then two, in terms of that conversation after we hit stop, which was unfortunate. The way in which salespeople or people who are looking to buy inventory 
how they overestimate and underestimate certain mediums. And we talked about how podcasting is very difficult to know what the return on your spend is because the clicks aren't constant. The connection to a listener is very difficult to quantify. Whereas in-person experiences are very easy because the head of the organization that's looking to buy something on your media business can be there in person, seeing the people in their eyes, talking to them, getting a feel for how much affinity they have with the brand that you potentially going to do a deal with. And it's just funny how that stuff happens. We just hope there are more savvy buyers out there who understand um, the world of podcasting. It will happen over time and it does happen, but it exists within the audiences themselves. So there's few things that you just can't fight. And certain things like in-person experiences make a lot of sense to me in terms of what opportunity that gives people that are in sales and where things happen. So got to get out there, pound the pavement, right? If you're around in New York in October the 19th, you can come to a Colossus in-person event with Patrick, David Senra. You can be there. And if you've got money to spend, Matt will be there too. Yep. There's a link in the show notes. I'm sure that ad placement right there is really going to do wonders about <laughs> three hours and 46 minutes of <laughs> yeah. this recording. I'm sure that's going to slam it home. As authentic, you know? True. Yeah, I will be there. And there might be some stuff going on before and after. So make it well worth your time to learn from the best in a variety of different ways and sharing the excitement of some live on stage AMAs, all types of good stuff. And there's very, very interesting people coming. So I will also add that in there. Yeah. And, you know, true to the form of the Lean Colossus organization with Brian, Brian would be very proud of us. I can't afford the ticket over, so I won't be there. You're more than welcome. It's just, I think you have some other stuff going on, which stopped you from coming. Uh, I don't want the headlines and the aggregators to prick this up in the wrong way. Don't let the truth get in the way of a good story. Yeah. Amen. Anything else? No, enjoyed that. I would encourage people if they're in this world and don't read Brian's the repeating it is very good and you can browse or you can be a regular reader i would encourage you to just go and check it out yes and his podcasts are also and not to give us more competition but um <laughs> also enjoyable and has some of the same guests but also i think some interesting people from legacy media that we don't normally tap into so always enjoy hearing what brian's thinking about and some of the broader themes going on in this media space this crazy crazy media world <laughs> yeah. all right very good I think that's our lot for today. Amen. We will see you next week. See you then.